My name is J.W. Oker. I'm an author, and I like to go out and look for weird stuff. I call it oddity. For more than a decade, I've sought out oddities of nature, oddities of art, oddities of culture and history. I believe that within a tank or two of gas, at any point in this country, is some seriously cool oddity, and that we all should go check it out. This is Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. Me and my wife moved to New England in 2008, and we moved to the state of New Hampshire. We chose New Hampshire for various practical reasons. It didn't have to be New Hampshire. It could have also been Massachusetts. But what I liked the most about New Hampshire was that it was a blank slate to me. All the other states kind of had some baggage. I was coming from the Mid-Atlantic, so I only knew the (laughs) New England states for their reputations. Vermont had baggage. Maine had baggage. Massachusetts had a lot of baggage. And then even Connecticut had baggage because it was basically New York. So I liked the fact that I was moving to a state that I didn't know anything about, that I didn't really have any impression of. I mean, I had this vague idea that they had something to do with politics and choosing the president or something about primaries. But since I wasn't a political guy, none of that really mattered to me. So when we got to New Hampshire, obviously we looked around to see, you know, what, what was the New Hampshire thing? What was it? What was the thing New Hampshire was known for? And what we learned was New Hampshire was known for the old man of the mountain. This was a rock formation up in the White Mountains that looked like a human face and had for a very long time, so far back that even Daniel Webster had commented on it. The face of the old man of the mountain was on everything in New Hampshire. The state signs, the souvenirs, the license plates, the state quarter had him on the back. He was everywhere except for where he was supposed to be. See, he had fallen down into a pile of rubble at the base of the mountain sometime in 2003. So we had missed the one iconic piece of New Hampshire, by about five years. But this was our new home, so we wanted to find something, something that was eminently New Hampshire that we could go see or do or experience. So we looked around, and what we found was that New Hampshire was the site of the country's most historic alien abduction. That's worth changing the license plates. See, In 1961, on the night of September 19th and on into the early morning of September 20th, husband and wife Betty and Barney Hill were traveling back from vacation to Montreal to their home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, on the coast, when, according to their story, they were followed by a spaceship and eventually accosted, kidnapped, examined, and then released back into the wild by its extraterrestrial crew. The event has gone on to become the best documented and most famous case of alien abduction in the history of ufology. Ufology. I think it's ufology in the history of ufology. It introduced into mainstream culture such terms as hypnotic regression, missing time, and the ever-classic anal probe, as well as cementing a template for the current mythology of alien visitors in both our fictions and the abduction claims in real life that have succeeded it. The story of the hills grew big enough, in fact, that it prompted a best-selling book by John Fuller entitled The Interrupted Journey, inspired a television movie called The UFO Incident, starring James Earl Jones, and even Carl Sagan felt the need to debunk it. That's how important it was and how prominent it was. So in 2008, when me and my wife arrived, we were on the cusp of the 47th anniversary of the event. So three years away from a much more momentous and nicely round number of 50th anniversary. But we couldn't wait three years. In fact, I don't even remember what we did for the 50th anniversary of this. I don't think anything. I think we scratched our itch by what we did on the 47th anniversary of the alien abduction of the hills. And what we did 
was we got into the car, drove up to northern New Hampshire, and then retraced the route taken by Betty and Barney Hill on that fateful night. So, right before New England officially switched over to its renowned autumn outfit, we trekked north to Lancaster, New Hampshire, waited for the appropriate hour of darkness, and then basically turned the car around and drove back home. Technically, we should have started in Montreal, but the Hills trip didn't get interesting until around about Lancaster. I had prepped in advance for this trip by reading Captured. It was a recently published account of the Hill abduction and its aftermath that was co-authored by Kathleen Marden, who was the niece of Betty Hill, and Stanton T. Friedman, who was a nuclear physicist and famous UFO guy. In fact, he was pretty much a famous UFO guy because he was a nuclear physicist. Now, that's in addition to my lifelong preparation of watching every single alien abduction movie I could get my hands on. That included, at the time, Communion, Close Encounters, Fire in the Sky, Altered, where the rednecks abduct the alien, and whatever clips I could find on the YouTube of the so far unreleased to Blu-ray UFO incident. The temperature on the night of our own journey was crisp, bordering right on cold, and the sky was perfectly clear for UFO watching. We popped the X-Files series soundtrack into the car stereo and took off, our eyes enthusiastically searching the sky, with the occasional glance spared for the darkness of the road ahead of us. According to their accounts, the hills were driving south on Route 3 when they noticed an erratic light in the sky that seemed to be following them. Eventually, that erratic light grew into a strange ship, which soon landed, trapping the hills. The ship's crew then escorted the dazed couple into the spacecraft and subjected them to the scientific rituals of some sort of intergalactic catch-and-release program. The Hills described the physical appearance of the aliens as Irish Nazi Jimmy Durantes. More or less, I'm kind of squeezing a bunch of their descriptions together because their descriptions did change over the course of time as they told the story. But basically, they looked like they were wearing Nazi uniforms. They had large, bulbous nose like Jimmy Durante, and there was an Irishman there as well. Now, I know that sounds weird and off the wall and completely made up, but honestly, that kind of description gives the account an aura of credibility to me. See, if some alien race from far off planet with some divergent biology comes to our planet, it feels like we'd have to get really creative with our descriptions. We wouldn't be able to just use regular language to describe these otherworldly beings. We'd have to use metaphor and poetry and just make up words for how to describe otherworldly beings. However, they also, unfortunately, described some of the creatures they saw as the classic greys that we all know with long, thin bodies, large heads, bulbous eyes, those guys. But like I said, their description of the aliens and their entire account of the night is somewhat confusing and contradictory. I don't mean for that to sound cynical on my part. It was a rough night for them. And again, that lends more credibility to me. If this thing does happen, if alien abductions do happen, it feels like your memory, your ability to retain it, your ability to even interpret what's happening has to be confused and messed up and just not up to the task. If an alien abductee comes back with perfect recollection and can just see everything and describe everything well, that would seem less believable to me. Actually, most of the Hill's memories of that night were unearthed a few years later under hypnosis and further reflection on their parts. Their immediate impressions of the night were hazy, disjointed, and included stretches of that aforementioned missing time. Everything along a midnight trip through the mountains of New Hampshire would be even without alien interruption. Certainly our own trek down that same road seemed, if not as surreal as the Hills experience, at least somewhere in the same Thesaurus entry. Of course, the whole story with the Hills and their experience of that night and everything they remembered later is much more detailed and complex than my summary here, but I've got to pack a lot into this podcast, so... Hold on. During the 60s, uh, when they were abducted, 
The main route for getting from the top of New Hampshire to the bottom was Route 3, and it still pretty much is, just with the addition of an interstate highway. As a result, the hill's approximate route is pretty easy to follow, as long as you pay attention to where it merges and unmerges with Interstate 93. And I mean you pay attention, because I absolutely didn't and ended up having to retrace my own route in order to retrace theirs. In fact, due to the hill's own fuzzy recollections of that night, and the various road and zoning changes over the ensuing decades, we still might not have followed their course exactly. But we also didn't get abducted, probed, or have our memories erased that I remember, so I counted as a trade-off. Even though a lot of the route is highway, much of it is still unlighted and highly spooky at the time of night that we drove it, especially through the mountainous Franconia Notch area. It feels desolate. The mountains block out the stars with their looming, ominous shapes. It is a scary route to take. But just like the hills did 47 years before, we pulled over and got out of our car at various points along the route. They, when they did it, were checking out the pursuing UFO in disbelief and being terrified into flight. We were merely taking pictures and spooking ourselves back into the car. Also, like the hills before, we passed by various New Hampshire landmarks, including the Old Man of the Mountain. Back in the hills day, obviously, he still had a face. These days and today, 10 years after our own trip, he's nothing but landslide remnants and an awkward New Hampshire marketing icon. When we drove past the site where he used to be, we could detect the smooth black outline of its decapitated stump against the stars. We also passed by the 85-year-old Jack-O-Lantern Resort in Woodstock with its pumpkin face sign that the hills probably would have also passed by back then. As to the actual touchdown point of the encounter, the spot is basically unknown even to the now-deceased participants. Betty claimed to be able to find it much later in life, but by then she was so immersed in UFO culture and her status within it that even UFO believers were starting to doubt her assertions. Finally, me and Lindsay made it home. We drove right into our driveway without any interruptions. I basically spent the whole trip forgetting to turn off my high beams for passing cars, braking for phantom moose, and wondering if anybody else on the road was saying Large Marge style, on this very night, 47 years ago, on this very stretch of road. For the record, I also didn't see anything I could have even forced myself to mistake for a UFO. But then again, I probably would have mistaken an actual UFO for not being one. That's how bad I am. In the end, for me and Lindsay, it was only a three-hour tour. For the Hills, it lasted until their dying days. Barney passed away at the young age of 46 due to a cerebral hemorrhage, eight years after the incident. Betty died in 2004 after living a long life fully enmeshed and celebrated in UFO culture. They're both buried at the back of Greenwood Cemetery off North Road in Kingston, New Hampshire. Below each of their names on their cemetery plaques, it reads, Of the Interrupted Journey. Most epitaphs include the most important parts of your life, your name, your date of birth, your date of death. For Barney and Betty Hill, that included that they were alien abductees. Meanwhile, my journey with the story of the Hills wasn't over just because I drove some roadway and visited their graves. After that, I came across other Hill-related oddities worth visiting in New Hampshire, including a homemade alien abduction gas station exhibit, the official university-held collection of original artifacts and documentation from the Hill incident, and an official state history sign. Seriously, we need aliens on our welcome sign. I've been in New Hampshire for 10 years now, I should be able to have a say in that. So let's start at the gas station. In Lincoln, New Hampshire, right off exit 33 on I-93 slash Route 3, the same route down which the hills traversed that dark night decades past, is the Franconia Notch Irving Express gas station. And it's Betty and Barney Hill themed. That's right, an alien abduction themed gas station. On pulling up to the pump, 
the first inkling you get that this gas station is more than a mere pit stop is the eight-foot square painting of a spindly, big-headed alien standing in the middle of a dark forest road, which is hanging beside the ice freezer where any other gas station would have a vinyl banner hawking beer, cigarettes, and stale snack cakes. Above the painting are the words, First Close Encounter of the Third Kind, Betty and Barney Hill, September 19th, 1961. After I pretended to fill up my gas tank while actually checking out the painting, I went inside to see the inevitable alien-themed wares for sale. The gas station had a few, although not as many as I thought a gas station with a giant painting of an alien would have inside. Clustered around the register counter were various trinkets in alien form, including day-glow inflatables and keychains, a few copies of the Martin and Friedman book Captured, and other tchotchkes. But then, as I started to leave the station, slightly disappointed, trying to weigh whether the outside painting by itself was enough to merit more than a passing mention in the article I was going to write about this, my bladder made a better decision than my brain. I walked into the gas station's single bathroom. The walls inside this relatively spacious bathroom were plastered all over with articles about the hills and other alien incidents. There were facsimiles of official documentation, drawings of extraterrestrials, photographs, spreadsheets regarding alien encounters, Right, there were actual spreadsheets taped to the wall of this bathroom. And, most oddly, if possible, images from random science fiction shows and movies, including Star Trek and Alien, both of which were tacked up in positions of honor right above the commode. It looked like one of those rooms that they have in police detective movies, where evidence and assorted paper slips are tacked everywhere on boards, while the detective tries to fit them together to solve some crime before it happens again. The coolest thing about the display was that it was in a bathroom. Unfortunately, for that same reason, propriety doesn't allow you to stay in there long enough to take it all in. However, in the years since I found this gas station bathroom exhibit, they have moved all of those alien materials to the store walls itself. Which is kind of sad for me because I love the phrase, gas station bathroom alien abduction exhibit. Show me the Chinese characters and I'll get it tattooed on the back of my neck. The next exhibit I would see about the hills and their alien abduction was more OMG than WTF. Although I said the long versions of both when I discovered I was being given access to it. In the spring of 2009, the Betty and Barney Hill archive, which had been donated to the University of New Hampshire in Durham, went on temporary public display at the Milne Special Collection and Archives Department of the UNH Library. The archive includes letters and personal journals from Betty and Barney Hill, audio tapes and transcripts of their hypnosis sessions, essays, newspaper clippings, reports, photographs, artwork, and even actual artifacts from that surreal night. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it in to see the display during the regularly operating hours, so I took the rare step of contacting them to see if it was possible to view the exhibit after hours, and even the rarer step of being honest about who I was instead of lying about being a Time magazine reporter. One of the curators of the UNH library, Dale, responded to my email and informed me that she'd be more than happy to allow me to see the display after hours, despite the low level of professionalism on display at my Otis website. Lindy and I expected to just spend a few moments gawking and photographing the few items on display from the large collection, and we certainly got to do that. The public exhibit was located in a hallway on an upper floor of the library, and it included one of Betty's handwritten journals, a box of her notes on extraterrestrial sightings, a few pieces of artwork, including a papier-mâché bust and a painting of an alien, some photographs of the couple, and other assorted bits. The piece I was the most interested in from the start, even before arriving, was the purple dress Betty wore the night of her abduction. And I was interested both for that reason, that it was the clothes she was wearing when it happened, but also because she claimed to have found some unidentifiable pink powdery substance on it that was supposed to have defied scientific analysis. They had the dress displayed on a mannequin torso inside of one of the glass cases. Immediately apparent was the missing swatch that had been removed for analysis, and the discolored patches from the mystery substance were evident as well. 
Now, as cool as it was to see that dress, and it should have been the upper highlight for me of that experience, but then Dale offered us the chance to see the files containing most of the original materials from the archive. This was the stuff that wasn't on public display. After dragging her to the nearest computer to show her Otis again, she still maintained that it was okay, so he pulled up a chair and I played the part of studious researcher that I'd seen so many times in the movies. The first items that I pulled out were the original pencil drawings that Betty and Barney had sketched of the spaceship that had accosted them and the famous star map that Betty claimed was shown to her by one of the alien crew. This is the actual papers with their actual pencil marks right there in front of me. Way cooler than the dress. I'd seen these rude drawings reproduced in books since I was a child, and here were the originals, right in my very own white linen gloved hands, which I should note weren't actually my gloves. Dale had given them to me to wear to protect the delicate photos from the horrible oils that my hands excrete. She could tell I was that type, I guess. Next were the original hypnosis transcripts. They had the original tapes, and it would have been swell to hear them, but I can't remember why I didn't. I think they were off being digitized or some such, or they were there and I was too chicken to push my luck and ask to hear them. I don't remember, honestly. Still, the transcripts were the next best thing, and I got to read the dramatic memories of the Hill's emotional abduction experience, vividly surfacing slash being falsely created right in the moment. After that, we read through a few more letters and journal entries and viewed a few more photos before taking our leave. We were very grateful to the UNH library and Dale personally for that opportunity. And we only sort of cautiously watched the skies on our drive home since we were now privy to such sensitive information. Now, since 2008, that time of our reenactment, New Hampshire itself has officially recognized that terrifying September night with a historical roadside sign. It's right by the Indian Head Resort on Route 3. And this is what it says. Betty and Barney Hill Incident. On the night of September 19th to 20th, 1961, Portsmouth, New Hampshire couple Betty and Barney Hill experienced a close encounter with an unidentified flying object and two hours of, quote, lost time while driving south on Route 3 near Lincoln. They filed an official Air Force Project Blue Book report of a brightly lit cigar-shaped craft the next day, but were not public with their story until it was leaked in the Boston Traveler in 1965. This was the first widely reported UFO abduction report in the United States. That definitely deserves a historical sign. Although, for the record, the sign says nothing about anal probes. Now, as I breathe into this mic, we're only a month away from the 58th anniversary of the event and the 10th anniversary of Lindsay and my reenactment. So I want to close with something that I read in one of Betty Hill's letters with my own shamefully naked eyeballs during my time rummaging through UNH's archives. In one of her letters, Betty Hill typed the phrase, P.S., New Hampshire is swarming with UFOs. We should paint over all the live free or die mottos on our welcome signs and put that in its place. P.S. New Hampshire is swarming with UFOs. All right, that's what I have for you today. A reason to visit my adopted home state of New Hampshire, what I often refer to as the least referenced state in the union. All right, next week, I start the Otis Halloween season on oddthingsivescene.com. This is a time where I post every day about spooky, Halloween-y, fall-y, autumn-y things. Anything you put a Y at the end, apparently, I'm posting about them every day. So come visit it. And the podcast for the next two months will also have somewhat of an orange and black crust to them as well. In fact, I think the next episode, and I don't usually do this for the podcast, tell you what the next one is, because I have no idea, honestly, from episode to episode. But I think what I'm going to tell you is about Sleepy Hollow. And I think I'll do another one on Salem. So come visit me on Otis to read about the Halloween season. As always, drop stars on iTunes. My new book comes out at the end of October. Don't forget about that. 
And that's all I have for you. I have an alien story and a bunch of plugs. So thank you for watching. Actually, that's not how I end these, is it? This has been Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. <laughs>